Well, Ron DeVera lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and he and his wife, Julia, this was now Thanksgiving 2008, were loading in a car and got their kids safely tucked in and were heading off now to um, Columbus. And they were going to Columbus, Ohio, Ohio to spend Thanksgiving with his folks. So he backed out of the driveway and took one last glance at the house. He had no idea that this two-and-a-half-hour drive that he would be taking would literally go a lot farther than he ever expected. He would go to the very edge of hell and back. Got to the in-law's house, had a wonderful meal, and next day is going to be Thanksgiving. That night he felt a pain in his chest, kind of like somebody was just a big fist in his chest. And there's a lot of heart disease in his family, and he'd already had several stents and angioplasty surgery. And so he told his wife, Julia, a registered nurse, about the pain in his chest. And she said, oh, my gosh, he shot up like a rocket out of bed and said, let's go to the hospital. He said, no, let's see if it's better in the morning. The next morning, it was still there. He goes to the hospital on Thanksgiving Day. He has two arteries, 70 to 80% blocked. They leave him in the hospital and schedule him for surgery the next couple of days. Ron DeVera had been to church as a little boy, didn't really like church, quit going as a teenager because of some hypocritical practices within the church, and he kind of made arrangements with the lawyer in case he died in open-heart surgery. He got his house in order, talked to his wife about the mortgage and the kids and school and the future, really did about everything else except see if he'd made peace with God. His faith was kind of on the periphery. He didn't really understand God and religion. It was out there. And he'd made arrangements to take care of everything else. And it was supposed to be about a four-hour surgery. And about 12 hours later, the exhausted doctors thought, well, we can finally now wrap him up. And he goes, he flatlines. And Ron DeVera, according to his story, wakes up in a forest. Dead forest. Dead trees. Black gobbly gook coming off of the trees. And he sees not one or two demons. He sees an army of demons. He sees hundreds and hundreds of demons all around him. And they begin to communicate to each other. He can't understand them. They have claws and fangs and they begin to poke him. And all he can do is cry out, Oh God, be merciful. Oh God, help me. Oh God, save me. As he began to pray wherever he was, he began to sense then that there was something about God that was real and God was beginning to move some of those demons away. And he prayed for hours and hours and hours. He prayed till he could pray no longer. And he didn't want to go to sleep wherever he was, but he couldn't help himself. And he wakes up then, and he's no longer in a forest, but now he's in a cave. And there's five or six demons, according to Ron DeVera, who are now lying directly on top of him just pressing him. One had claws piercing his hands, piercing his leg, piercing different parts of his body. And again, he's crying out and praying to God. He wakes up then and uh, he asks, how long have you been out? And he'd been out for five weeks. And he said, I want to get baptized right now. And the doctor said, you, you can't. You, you, infection, it's, you can't. We'll release you. And I, I want to be baptized now. I want to make peace with God now. And this was 2008. And Ron DeVere then was baptized. And he will tell everybody his story. He said, I'm not making this up. 
I'm not a religious man. He said, but I believe in God and I've given my life to Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And Ron DeVere today, a guy who works for the Defense Department, is telling his story to everybody. Now, we like the near-death stories with lights and angels and Jesus and guides. And we like all those. And there are tens of thousands of near-death experience stories that believers have had before they were kind of resuscitated. But there are also tens of thousands of near-death experiences where people went to the very edge of hell and back. And we don't really like those stories. I mean, I like the angels and the guides and the lights, and I like those stories. But there is another side to this story. And according to the near-death experiences of people who have not had a faith in God, there is a reality of the devil, of demons, of Sheol, of hell itself. And so, if you're brand new today, you get the best pick of all the sermons in this series, all right? You get the good one. And I I just, I don't know how to do a six-week series on life after death without talking about, really, the devil and demons and hell. And we're going to land today, hopefully, where we can all be together on, even if maybe we're on the 40-yard lines of maybe splitting hairs about hell itself. But let's just start at the very beginning. Where did evil come from? Where in the world does the Bible describe evil, and how did that begin to take place? Well, the Bible describes Lucifer. And Lucifer was an archangel of God. An amazing angel. And he was big and he was powerful and he was absolutely beautiful. But for whatever reasons, this archangel decided that he just didn't want to support God. He wanted to try to be God. And so we learn about Lucifer in Isaiah and in Ezekiel. And I've given you lots of room to take notes today. And I encourage you to take notes. I encourage you to go back and look up some of these scriptures. These are two prophecies about bad kings of Israel. But it's a fuller picture, not just about certain kings, but about Lucifer himself. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 and 15 say this. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So he wanted to be like God. But you were brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. This is what happens in Isaiah. Look at Ezekiel. Kind of a similar type of of description. But Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17 says, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection. This is Lucifer. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountains, mountains were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. And so I drove you from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. 
Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I, may, so I threw you to the earth. And you ask yourself, you know, what happened? Well, here's this great, big, incredible, gorgeous, beautiful angel, archangel, uh, Lucifer, and Lucifer was able to persuade tens of thousands of other angels to come with him. And so we recognize that Lucifer was a tempter. And right off the bat in the early chapters of Genesis, we see how he came to, to Eve and got Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that this tempter comes to Jesus. And um, Jesus wasn't about to succumb to temptation, but take these stones and, and make them bread and fall down and worship me and jump off the highest point of the temple and your angels will, will protect you. And so we see in the early chapters of Genesis and the early chapters of, of, of the Gospels where he was a tempter uh, to both Eve and, and to, say, uh, to, to Jesus. He's our adversary. Zechariah chapter 3 talks about our adversary. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. And so Satan is an accuser, and he's always out to accuse you of your, your mishaps and your sin and your shame. But also 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And it's Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says this, Our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Now folks, Satan's plan is really basic. His plan is to get you to choose self-destructive choices and self-destructive behaviors. And that's what the enemy is out to do. Now why? Why does the enemy want you to self-destruct? Because the enemy hates God. The enemy hates the things of God. The enemy hates the people of God. And so today there are demons and there are demonic forces that are trying to get you and me to choose self-destructive behavior. Behavior that is anti-God and against God and will certainly harm the people of God. So that's kind of a big picture on the devil. Let's slide quickly into demons if, if we can for just a few minutes. These are his partners. The demons today are also fallen angels. Now, How many of them are there? I don't know. But there are a lot of them. And for whatever reason, there were probably, I'm going to guess, maybe a third of the angels in heaven decided to go with Lucifer and to set up shop here on this earth. They were cast down, they were thrown to this particular earth. You know, the Bible contains a whole lot of references. The Bible talks about demons, demon possession, talks about unclean spirits, um, it talks about evil spirits. It talks about spirits from the abyss. And there's a pretty well-developed theology of evil in the Bible, isn't there? And you ask, you know, people, do you believe in angels? And, you know, everybody, I mean, do you guys, do you all believe in angels? I mean, we all want to believe in angels, right? But you ask the same people, do you believe in demons? And, you know, about 100% believe in angels, but about 59% of Americans believe in demons. Well, how can you have one without the other? If you're going to have the angels of light, you're also going to have the angels of darkness. 
And Jesus talked about this often. Um, Jesus encountered demons. And I got a couple other verses I want to share with you now. Mark chapter, where am I? Mark chapter 1. Yeah. Mark chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, well, what is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. There are numerous stories in the New Testament where Jesus cast evil spirits out of women. He cast evil spirits out of men. He cast evil spirits out of children. The classic story for me is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. And this is a bunch of pigs in this story. Do you remember this story? In Mark 5, 1 through 13, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerizines. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God. That's kind of funny, isn't it? Here's a demon asking the Son of God to swear swear to God. There's some humor in that. Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of this area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hill, on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came and went out into the pigs. That's a great story unless you're a pig farmer, isn't it? Isn't that a great, great story? Um, I don't know how we can't have a frank and honest discussion about about demons today. Now, I'm pretty convinced that as believers, we cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. But I'm also convinced, as a believer, that we can be affected by evil spirits. I'm pretty convinced, let me say the same thing I just said in a different way, I'm pretty sure that as Christians, we cannot have demons on the inside of us. But I'm also pretty sure that as believers, we can have demons on the outside of us, hanging on to us, causing all kinds of trouble. And so there's a difference between being afflicted, and there's a difference between that and being possessed. And and as Christians today... We allow ourselves those doors and those windows of access for evil when we don't follow the scriptures, when there's unconfessed sin in our life, when we build up resentment and bitterness and we refuse to to fast and we refuse to pray and we refuse to forgive other people. Now, 
I don't really know of too many people. I've known a few that I'm pretty sure were demon-possessed, and they were not believers. But I do know that as believers, we've got to be really careful with how we live. It's really important that we just follow the Scriptures and we confess our sins and we humbly come before the Father on a regular basis. We acknowledge that we've been saved and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And therefore, we're not building up resentment and bitterness. When, you've not, when you fail to forgive other people, I, I think it's like a, like, a, you know, like a parasite just sucking on top of you. It is so easy for us to be afflicted and affected by evil. And so that's why the Bible encourages us to forgive one another. That's why the Bible tells us not to, to build up, you know, bitterness and let that root of bitterness take hold within our lives. And so as Christians, I mean, we just keep coming back to the throne. We keep coming back to God and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I, I ask you to forgive me for this, and I forgive her, and I forgive him. And no, they don't deserve to be forgiven, but, but yeah, I'm going to forgive them because you forgave me. And if you forgave me, who am I not to forgive them? And there's a series of, uh, of continual cleansing for those of us that are Christians and for those of us that are believers. Now, I'm, I'm convinced that... Um, Demons can affect us because yesterday I had a demon affect my television. <laughs> Tonight's the big game, 6.30, Super Bowl tonight. Yesterday evening, I kid you not, we're in there, we're watching the TV, my flat screen, my 42-inch flat screen, and all of a sudden it goes pop. The screen goes black. And all you can do is you can hear it. You can hear the volume. You can hear the commercials. So if you want to come over this afternoon and hear the game at my house tonight, you're welcome. You can't watch it at my house tonight. I, I don't know if a demon did that. It's old. It probably needs to be replaced. It probably had nothing to do with the demon. But you know when you're being afflicted. And you know when you're being tempted. And you know when things are not right. You know when there's like this foreboding spirit just running all over you and it just doesn't feel good. The Bible is clear about Lucifer. Jesus talked often about unclean spirits and evil spirits that are around today. And, and Jesus even said it, it can affect the way you think. Look at Luke chapter 22 verses 3 through 6. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priest and the officer of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand him over to them when no crowd was present. I mean, Satan entered Judas. How, how'd that happen? How did he open himself up? What windows, what doors of access were present, presented for that to take place? Well, it did. And demons will work through us. But we're not to be afraid of that because 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 tells us this. You are from God. You've overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And so we're not to live a life of fear, but we are to live a life of confession. We are to live a life of humility. We are to live a life of prayer. And I haven't really done much teaching on fasting. I'm going to teach a little bit on fasting sometime this, in this next year. But we are to live a life of just continual re, uh, relationships with God in connection with our Heavenly Father. All right. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about hell. And I've got to tell you that hell is my least favorite subject. I preached for 16 years in Memphis, Tennessee, and only one time in 16 years did the elders ever come to me from that church and ask me to preach on a topic. 
And after about nine years, they came to me and said, Kurt, you've never preached on hell. I said, I don't like hell. Who wants to talk about hell? You know, I said, well, we, we, we think that's a part of the Bible. And, and so I'm, I'm getting ahead of our elders here before they ask me to preach on it. Uh, it it's a life after death uh, content. And so I want to talk about this subject for just a few minutes. But I'll be honest with you. It is my most uncomfortable. It is my least favorite topic in all the scriptures. Let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 it says, just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. So we know that we die once. And so what happens with these people with near-death experiences? Well, they didn't fully die. They were resuscitated. But once you're dead, you're dead. I mean, once you die, you die. And after that, you go to face the judgment. Look at the next passage of Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him... He will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on the right, and he will put the goats on his left. You want to be a sheep in this category, okay? This is true. All right. Look at the next passage of Scripture. 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says this. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Now listen to Matthew 25, verse 46. Jesus said, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We like that. Those are the passages that we like, isn't it? I don't know that you've ever had a history of hell. I don't know that you've ever gone to the History Channel and said, you know what, tonight I'm feeling really good. I think I want to watch a history of hell. I I just, for just a couple minutes though, I I want to talk about the history of hell. Because in the Old Testament it was called Sheol. And Sheol in the Old Testament was a place of departed spirits. And Sheol basically had two different holding tanks. Sheol had a holding tank for the righteous, like that were Abraham, Abraham's side. The New Testament talks about Abraham's bosom. But it's, it's, it's the righteous holding tank where, where the faithfulness and the faith of, of people like Abraham. And then there was the unholy holding tank in Sheol where people like Jezebel would be held. Fast forward then to the time of Christ. Jesus Christ talked about hell. Jesus talked about it as a real place. Jesus talked about hell as eternal. Jesus talked about it with fire. Jesus talked about hell as a place of separation from the very presence of God. Fast forward to the third century. Origen was an early church father. And Origen said, you know what? I don't really like the stuff that Jesus had to say about hell. I'm going to kind of redraft what I think he was trying to say. And he talked about hell being a place of rehabilitation. And it was a place where you would go and you would get rehabilitated. And the early church said, that's not right. That's a bunch of hooey. And so they went fast forward in a few more centuries. And by the time we come into the Dark Ages... In the Dark Ages, we begin to talk about limbo, and we begin to talk about purgatory, and purgatory would be a place where you would go and you would be purged of your sins, and also it was not really a good time for the church, 
It was a corrupt time of the church, and they began selling indulgences. And indulgences were things that you would go and buy to help Uncle Harry, because he was a real rounder, and he drank way too much, and he's going to be in purgatory for 150 years. But if you kind of gave some money to the church, you could get Uncle Harry out of purgatory. It was not a fine time for the church. Fast forward into the Reformation, the 14 and 15 and 1600 years, we're back to the idea of hell being eternal punishment. But even some funny things took place because then there was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards in in the 1700s began teaching, uh, he had a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was not a great communicator. Apparently he read all his sermons. He never looked up at the people. Apparently he just looked down and just read. And I guess for about three hours, Jonathan Edwards is talking about the heat of hell, how hell, how hot hell was, how long hell was. And it was said that afterwards, people, grown men were outside and they were confessing every sin that ever convicted, that ever convicted since kindergarten. So apparently it was a very effective sermon and a very effective message. But also during that time, there were some other people like in the Victorian age. The chaplain to Queen Victoria pronounced that hell was a blasphemy. So now we're going the other direction. Every one of these different people are struggling with where do we land on hell. And the Victorian chaplain said hell is a blasphemy against the merciful God. There was an Anglican by the name of F.D. Maurice. And F.D. Maurice argued that eternal death is more consistent with God's character than eternal punishment. In other words, he believed in hell, but you just kind of went there and you died. You didn't have to keep being tortured forever and forever. It was Lewis Carroll, who was the author of Alice in Wonderland. This is a weird thing. Lewis Carroll, the the author of Alice in Wonderland, dismissed the inspiration of Scripture and insisted on God's goodness precludes hell. And some of you will remember Norman Vincent Peale, and all of us probably know at least who Robert Schuller is, and they also began to kind of air-condition hell a little bit, and Norman Vincent Peale, <clears throat> sorry about that, <laughs> no, Nor- Norman Vincent Peale began to, to teach on the power of positive thinking, and, and, and today Robert Schuller continues to, to do possibility thinking. There are wonderful TV preachers, and there are wonderful, really mega, mega church preachers. But some of those mega church preachers today, if you listen carefully, never talk about hell, never talk about salvation, never talk about being born again, never talk about how you have to make a choice. Now, folks, I would love to air condition hell. I would. I would love to do it. I just don't know how. I don't know how to air condition hell in light of what the scriptures teach about from the words of Jesus. And Jesus was the ultimate authority, the son of God, the incredible communicator. He had an inside tract. He was God. And Jesus talked about hell's eternal. And it was a place of torment. And that it was forever and forever and forever. And basically you don't want to be there. You want to do everything you possibly can to figure out how not to land there, how not to be there. So I I land with C.S. Lewis on this. And I got a quote from C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis said this, and I agree with him a hundred percent. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. If it lay in my power, but has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. Let's just keep in mind, Matthew 25, this is what it says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. Let's just keep this in mind. 
God never created hell for his people. He created hell for the devil and for his angels. And so God didn't get all excited and say, you know what, I'm going to make hell because some of these people are going to burn. God doesn't want that. That was never God's will. That was never God's plan. That was never God's purpose. And so wherever you land on this doctrine of hell, I'm okay if you're on one 40-yard line and I'm on the other 40-yard line. That's really not the point this morning. The point is, I think as believers, we want to do everything we possibly can to help people not to go there, right? I, I think the goal from this kind of a message is not, oh, good, you know, my enemy didn't like him anyway. He's going to rot in hell forever. You know, that, that's not the point. The point is, God has given us opportunities to help people to find Jesus Christ. And here's where I think we come, come to play in this. I think we all have a role in this. I think every one of us that are believers in this room, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, the one thing, the only thing Jesus ever asked you to do, the only thing, he gave you forgiveness, eternal life, he gave you no shame, no pain, he replaced all that. The only thing Christ has ever asked us to do as New Testament Christians is to be fishers of men. And that's what we are to do. And and, and I don't understand believers who just get fire insurance and don't care about other people getting fire insurance. I mean, I I got a wife and I got I got I got three kids. I mean, if our house is on fire, am I okay if I get out of the house and the other four are going to burn up? Okay, I I saved the need. I love my wife. We've been married twenty six and a half years. I'm going to stick with her. Got her broken in. She got me broken at this point. We're going to. I rescue her, but I don't care about Erica, Ethan, or Emily. Okay, I get Danita out, and I, I get Eric out. But I don't care about Ethan and Emily. All right, I get Ethan too, and Emily, you know, she's the youngest. She just, she just didn't, didn't make it, right? House is on fire. Four men couldn't hold me back. I'm going in the house. I'm breaking a window. I'm going through the roof. You can't hold me back. And we are surrounded by people who are just walking in a daze. And I don't get it. I don't get the fact that as believers, we're not on fire, intense, personal, leaning in all the time, doing everything we can to help people avoid hell. This is the message for hell for me. The message for hell is how do we prevent everybody we can from going there? Now in the pig story, the guy that got saved and got the evil spirit out, even in the pig story, he said, let me come with you. I want to hang with you. I want to be with your, with your boys. And Jesus said, no. Go back home and tell your family what the Lord has done for you. And you say, well, you know what? I I can't tell people about Jesus. Kurt, you've been trained. Did you invite anybody over to your house for the Super Bowl? Can you invite anybody to come to your house? If you can invite people to your house, how can we not invite people to come to God's house? It's not that hard. But it is about putting people on our radar. And that's what I think it is. I think you care. I do think you care. And I think you know how long and how miserable hell really is going to be with the absence of God. But we've got to put these people on our radar. And we've got to put these people in front of us. Maybe it's just prayer. Maybe it's just writing down on three by five card three different names in all of 2011. You're going to pray for, pray over, and pray among. Maybe it's just prayer. Maybe for you it's inviting the same people seven or eight or nine or ten times. It takes seven to nine invitations before people come. Maybe your thing is money and you like to give money and you're good at that. I mean, salvation is free, but evangelism is very, very expensive. 
I don't know your role. I don't know your part. I just know it is your part. And if you are a Christian, if you are a New Testament believer, for goodness sakes, get in, get on, let's get on the bus together and let's do everything we can to help our family and our friends and our neighbors know Jesus Christ. I've been inviting the same neighbors now for six and a half years. I got a new neighbor that I meet at Starbucks and that he and I have had some great conversations and he's brilliant. I'm not even sure I can answer all of his questions. I don't care. I know God's at work. I had a conversation 7 o'clock Thursday morning at the YMCA with two guys that I just love. And they're both just arrogant and just proud and just think I'm crazy. Well, that part may be true. I'll give them that one. But see, these people matter to God. And they should matter to us. And whatever we do, to love them and to encourage them and to pray for them and just to invite them. And just to tell them what the Lord has done for me. The Lord's forgiven me. The Lord's changed me. I can now sleep the night. The Lord's given me life and peace. The Lord's given me purpose. The Lord's given me direction. Just tell people what the Lord has done for you. And if, if you're not a Christian, oh my goodness. This message doesn't get you. I don't know what will. I mean, this is literally a hell of a decision. What on earth are you going to do for heaven's sake? Do you follow all that? And so I, I just want to give you a chance. This is just, just a prayer, and this is just a salvation prayer I'm going to put on the screen right now. And, and, and we're all going to say it with you. I mean, you're not going to have to be the only one. Oh, my gosh, I'm exposed. I'm ashamed. If, if you've never given your life to Christ, I mean, at this particular point, I'm just going to, you know, this is your deal. This is your chance. This is your opportunity to publicly, personally say, I, I, it's just the start of the journey. It's just, you're just getting started. You're just warming up. I mean, it's not halftime. It's, it's not even the pregame. You're just getting the ball rolling. So if you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never publicly and personally made a profession of faith, that, you know, Jesus, I'm going to cross over. I can't figure it all out, but I'm going to cross over. I'm going to give us all a chance to say this. And so would everybody will say this with you, and maybe today this is your first opportunity. Here we go. Ready? Ready? All right, here we go. Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. I am so grateful that you are able and willing to forgive me of all my sins. I confess that you are the Son of God, and at this moment, I give my whole life to you. Thank you for allowing me to become a Christian and live with you forever. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer... The angels in heaven are fist bumping or high fiving each other right now because you just gave your life to Him. And all of us then get to partake of communion. We're going to pass out the loaf and the cup right now, and you just kind of take this on your own, and we're going to sing another song at the end. But just take the loaf and the cup and remember what Jesus Christ did for you. This is our opportunity now to thank Jesus Christ. Jesus, you came to this earth, you paid a sin debt for me that I couldn't pay. I am so grateful for your body and for your blood. And I just want to honor you with that now.